postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Here's a mission principle for you. And this is something that was instilled in me during like some of my mission days. But like wherever you go on mission, recognize that you're showing up and God is already there. Yes. You're not introducing him. Like you are showing up to work that he has already started mm-hmm. in human hearts, wherever they happen to be. So, yeah. you know, this this is this is the framework we have to have in our minds. So when we talk about the relationship between culture and ethnicity and paganism versus monotheism, worship of the true God, and what are the cultural forms that accompany it. Um hmm. So, I mean, when I when I write like, oh, what is the Bible's overall approach to pagan cultural influences? Rest assured, there are plenty of passages and and Jeremiah and Isaiah will give this to you with great passion where they condemn paganism and its practices roundly. Right. Mm. Like there's there's just as much criticism as there is a like positive dialogue. Right. Mm. I mean, again, it's all about nuance. Right. It's like this is good. This is not. It's about discernment. It is about you know, separating the clean from the unclean, the pure from the impure, right? Mm. But like, we have to do it in the way that I think God does it, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. And so I'm trying to see if I can tie this in. Paul, 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 Paul. We had that discussion about like, what name do you call God? Or what name do you call an unknown God? I know Mm. you've done your own fair share of writing on Acts chapter 17 and Paul in Athens. Um, I know I've seen a few posts from you, you know, here and there about that topic. And that, that was one of the first ones that really struck me. I was like, oh, wow, Paul just borrowed quotations from pagan philosophy and even just straight up hymns to Zeus. Yeah. Just straight up hymns to Zeus. And it was like, I'm just going to apply this to the Hebrew God through Jesus. And, and like, wow, that's, that's a bold move right there. But it's like, is that acceptable as a form of contextualization? I understand that also not just within Adventism, I mean, certainly within Adventism, but also within broader Christian circles, there has been disagreement amongst people about whether what Paul did there was right or wrong. Hmm. Um, And, um, you know, I would personally argue that the way Luke presents it it is just does not contain criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you measure, some, some people will say like, oh, Paul was not successful in Athens. I'm like, I guess, but like the last, like one of the last towns he was in, they just straight up tried to murder him. So like, <laughs> that's a good point. You know, yeah. He's like, yeah. They're, they're, that's, like, and it's oh. interesting you bring that up. Cause that's actually one of the points in my very last sermon on the series that I just released on, um, um, the art of missional living, I actually tackled the idea of, you know, um, not cause some people say, look at that and say, oh yeah. So like everything Paul did here was a mistake and it was wrong. I don't take that position. I do see a mistake, a pretty big mistake that he made. It wasn't in the contextualization itself. Um, and, and it's, it's the way I take it, you know, that, there, that uh, when, you, when you parse Paul's sermon in Mars Hill, 
he seems to have made the mistake of attempting to get the Athenians to abandon idolatry through a logical logical presentation. So like all the contextualization is brilliant. It's all he skips the cross. Like right. he just completely skips it. And obviously the only thing that changes people is the cross. Like, you know, obviously your logic is, you know. So if there was a mistake that he made, that would be, I think, that the biggest one is to remember that, hey, you know, the only way that people can actually be regenerated is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Logical thinking isn't, you know, obviously going to accomplish that. But I agree with you. Like, I do think that there is a bit of tension there with some people saying, I was it right or was it wrong? And Luke's clear angle is not critical. He's he's not looking at this as, oh boy, what Paul did here was horrible. Luke right. is clearly writing this as an example and saying, right. hey, learn from this. Like this is this is beautiful missiological contextualization. And it's yeah. something that's deeply missing because we're so busy trying to be different. Um yeah. and always different in a way that is, you know, yeah. Arbitrary. Superficial. superficial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So and this is the thing I think it's interesting to see Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, like the guy mm. whose mission is I'm going to bridge the cultural gap between the way of Israel's God through his Messiah to these people who need to be grafted into the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when some of these ethical issues come up in the New Testament, you know, what are you thinking of? You think of the Jerusalem Council, right? Acts chapter 15. And they're like, please, all y'all Gentile Christians, like, chill, don't worry about the circumcision. But for goodness sake, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, okay? Just don't do that, right? It's just, we, we don't do that here, okay? <laughs> and then 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10 come around. And Paul throws some strange nuance into that conversation. Because we know Acts chapter 15, definite, like, no to the meat sacrifice to idols. Also, in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, definite like Jesus has a problem with the people who are eating meat sacrificed to idols or teaching others mm -hmm. to do so. But this thing in First Corinthians has always fascinated me. It's fascinated me for a very, very, very long time. Um, because you get this discussion where Paul is like, on the one hand, I recognize the idea innate to monotheism that these idols do not represent things that are truly God. There is mm. no God but God. God is the only God who qualifies in the category that he inhabits. So the idols are falsehoods. Mm. Um, and, and he does acknowledge that point. He then goes on to seemingly contradict that point and says, but what people offer to idols is not offered to the idol itself, but to a demon that the idol mm -hmm. represents so don't be partakers right mm. and and the the logic in first corinthians 10 has always seemed like staggeringly rapid fire to me the the speed at which he says like when we participate in the lord's table we are participating in christ i do not want you to be partakers with demons so don't do it and mm. then almost instantaneously he says so whatever you find in the meat market eat it and don't raise an issue <laughs> And I'm just like, Paul, what, I'm sorry, what speed are you operating at? Because dude, you're going to break my neck with the, these transitions. Like, what's yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah. Um, and I think this is my tagline that I've never actually had the chance to say out loud that I'm going to say now. Um, in our worship debate, we have a lot to say about reverence, but not enough about reference. 
with an F. Mm. Reference aboutness. What is a given action about? Mm. What what is it for? And this is obviously a variation on an older argument that says like, well, worship is about your intention. Who are you offering it to? Who who do you believe you're worshiping? Right? Who what it, it's about intention? How you're using mm-hmm. it? Yeah. But that that this is I think an anchor point for that. Paul is saying, if this food is like you know, extreme example, you are in the middle of a temple to like Apollos or something. Uh, and or Apollo. Apollos is a guy's name. Apollo. Anyways, you get what I mean. Like some Greco-Roman god. You're in a Greco-Roman god's temple, and they're sacrificing the meat right there, and it's a ritual ceremony, and eating it with everyone is part of worshiping the god. Yeah, don't do that because it's about that god right now. Mm-hmm. The ritual itself is tied by the social connotation to this entity and the being that the idol represents. Mm-hmm. But when the priests in the temple have said, all right, we have no use for this meat anymore. And like, we can't eat, like, I'm full. We can't eat this. Send it to the market outside. That meat that was sacrificed to the idol, it no longer has reference to that idol. It is no longer about that. Mm. It has changed its meaning because context defines meaning. So when Paul says, if you're in the marketplace and you encounter some meat, Okay, buy the meat and take it home and eat it. If someone says, oh, yes, thanks be to Asclepius or thanks be to Poseidon for this, or I'm sure Poseidon's not in charge of food, but you know what I mean, right? (laughs) For this meat that I'm about to sell you. Okay, well, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about to me, right? Mm. So, but again, that is is about the intention of the gesture, the intention of the action. Who do you believe you are offering this to? That's Something right. that I remember up- some time ago, this this might actually help. Some time ago, reading an article about mission in, um, I believe it was in, in a Jamaican context, mm-hmm. where um, the I think it was a pastor who wrote the article. And look, I couldn't dig it up for you if I tried. I, I don't remember the title of it or anything, it. but this was some years ago. Uh, and he was saying that um, one of the things that they often do when it comes to baptism is um, you'll have people who come to be baptized uh, maybe they came to an evangelistic series or something in Jamaica and they come to be baptized and uh, they have dreadlocks, right? Mm. And so he said, the question that, that, and he was a Jamaican pastor himself. And he said, the question right. that he usually asks someone is, are your dreadlocks part of your oath to the Rastafarian way or are they just fashion? And if the dreadlocks are just fashion, all right, let's go. If they are part of an oath, then right. you need to cut the dreadlocks because by cutting the dreadlocks, you are disassociating yourself with this oath that you took to the Rastafarian way, right? Um, right. And but if your dreadlocks are just hey, I just like my hair this way, then there's no need to cut your hair. Like it's you're not right. dissociating from anything. It's just fashion. And I think we struggle with that as as um, as Adventists, where we where we paint everything with one brush. To say like, oh no, the dreadlocks, they're, they're just worldly and they have to go. Like I remember growing up, like even in my church, like anyone who had dreadlocks, like people judged them. Oh, that person doesn't really, you know, they're not really committed to Jesus because that's a worldly right. hairdo. And I'm like, right. and your hairdo isn't like, you know, right. um, like your What's hairdo, like an angel, hairdo? an angel cut your hair, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, like I thought that was a really interesting, whether or not we we fully agree with the approach the pastor takes, I think it's an interesting Mm-hmm. nuance within that context to say, look, dreadlocks, 
are in and of themselves not the point. The point is what they are associated to, the reference that right. they have. So if you've grown this this style, this hair, at ref, as a reference or as a testament to your allegiance to, to a way of tradition. being, to a yeah. religious tradition that is that is not of Christ, then if you're going to give your life to Christ, make a public statement that you are completely dissociating from this way, um, this other religion. But if you just grew them out because you like the way it looks, then it's not necessary, you know. And I thought that was a really interesting nuance that we could learn right. from. Yeah. So I, I I think there was a little bit in there that might bring some, you know, color to to what you were saying. No, I think that's a that's a good example of like someone looking for that nuance in their own context, mm -hmm. right? So I yeah, that it makes sense as an example. Um, I do I do know, and this is just like a FYI. I do know I'm 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 very privy to Jamaican cultural conversations given my marriage. Your wife status. is Jamaican. Yeah, that's right. Yes. But I know there is a movement right now to go just with locks mm. as the descriptor rather than including the word dread. I mm. I believe if if I'm not mistaken that there is some negative connotation like like negative history that's associated with the use of the word i mean dread literally means fear right right yeah so yeah, it's like yeah, there's yeah. some negative connotation associated with the use of that in the term dreadlock so yeah, i know yeah. some caribbean people are now just using the term locks okay um, which, yeah i mean that's helpful to know yeah yeah it's i mean I, not not a, not a lot of jamaicans right. in perth to uh to keep me privy on the uh on the lexicon <laughs> so no that's so. that's helpful i will i will update yeah. my lexicon yeah that's that's yeah, really good you know yeah now i know Look at that. Yeah, you learn something new. You learn something day. new. This is what we're doing. <laughs> oh, awesome, man. man. So look, walk me through this um, before we wrap this up. I mm -hmm. want to touch on, because I know I've heard a lot of sermons where people appeal to these biblical stories. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, look, if we take our time to walk through each and every one, we'll probably be here for another two hours. But maybe right. a brief overview or, or a brief perspective. You you mm -hmm. hear stories like, um, you know, and and the, the objective of 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 commenting on these stories and traditional s sermons is to demonstrate that there is a kind of music that is evil and a kind of music that's good. And so, for right. example, uh, Moses on the mountain and the people are down there worshiping a golden calf, and he's coming down and he's like, "What is that sound that I hear?" Um, and you know, it's the sound of war in the camp and it's like, Joshua's like, no, they're, you know, it's a, it's a, they're worshiping, you know, et cetera. And so it's like, oh, the music that they were using to worship this calf sounded like war. Right. Um, and that's, you know, and so that's used as an example of like, that's a, that's a music that Moses found disturbing. And so there's a musical expression that is, that is bad. Um, and then of course you have the story, the classical story. And I, I want to touch on, this is going to rub shoulders with the previous episode, the classical story of David and Saul. Um, and how David's music relieved the evil spirit in Saul. And that what the assumption here is that, um, that a certain style of music can cast out demons. And the implication is that a certain style of music can bring also demons invited. in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so there's a, there's a sense in which the musical style itself can be a channel of spiritual beings. Um, so I want to, I want to parse that a little bit and again, like there's probably a million things we could say about it, but just give us a sort of an overview on, sure. on how you approach that. What people like to do is they like to use the technique of allegorization to basically arbitrarily assign 
the will of God to certain, you know, worship aspects in various Old Testament narratives, right? You definitely see it in the uh, Saul and David story, which is First Samuel 16. Um, you definitely see that, I, I think, more than anything else with Nadab and Abihu. Um, people love to do that one, just be like, oh, when you bring in the wrong music style, it's akin to bringing in the unauthorized fire. And I try not to think too hard about how that's actually a death threat. But, um, you know, um, <sighs> wow. Um, when I look at passages like that, again, one, we have to ask the questions, descriptive or prescriptive, and also normative or regulative principle. Um, often, I think there are people who are attempting to function within the regulative principle of worship while reading these stories and saying like, oh, God has clearly expressed a type of worship that he wants, a type of music that he wants. And if you deviate from it, you are clearly going against the will of God. But like, okay, in the, it's, in the case of Nadab and Abihu, it's not really even 100% clear in the story what specifically they did wrong. Like, yes, they brought in unauthorized fire, but like, in what, like, what was wrong with it? What, like, right? Like, it's, it's not all the way clear. Mm. And then there's like a reference afterwards to like, um, vague reference to like, by the way, don't be drunk when you go in there, right? Like, that's one thing mm -hmm. Moses kind of says to Aaron or whatever. So it's not really fully clear what happened there. But moreover, and this is, this is one of the things, I think people forget how an allegory works. In order for it to work, you need to, like, if you're going to say that Hillsong or Lecrae or Demon Hunter or whatever you want to identify within modern Christian music is the unauthorized fire, then by virtue of how an analogy works or an allegory works, you must also have something that fills in the spot of authorized fire. So mm -hmm. what is the authorized fire in your system, in your analogy? you cannot from scripture provide an answer to that because there mm. is no music style that God has ever authorized ever in history. Mm. We, we just don't have it. It doesn't exist. God has never said this genre is the thing that I want from you, or these instruments are the ones that I want from you. We, mm -hmm. we look at the old Testament. I think that it's very clear that the instrumentation does change a little bit. I would have to quantify that a little more by looking into it, but like, you know, there's the influx of Greek instruments just by virtue of how history plays out into the New Testament, right? They would have become more familiar with Greek instruments. Uh, you even see them becoming aware of them in Daniel, right? Daniel chapter three, mm -hmm. which is a beast unto itself. I just thought about it, but I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> but which, like, by the way, is very interesting when, when they when they bow to the statue in the plain of Dura, the instruments it lays out as being played are instruments that are also included in the worship of God in Psalms. So, right. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting point to see like the same instruments are being used in the pagan worship as well as the sacred worship. Mm -hmm. And uh, God doesn't seem to be too concerned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's one of those things that when you actually apply any level of rigor to it, it falls apart because again, what is your authorized fire? Uh, European classical music? Nope. God never authorized that. We, we mm. culturally assign a kind of like almost semi-divine quality to it, but that's because we are culturally conditioned to associate 
the sound of classical music and especially I think choir music with heaven and angels, right? But like, yeah, yeah, European. It reminds European me actually, just, singers. just, yeah. yeah. Look, it, it reminds me actually. Uh, look, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, no, sometimes no, okay. uh, I, I jump this in there because I'm show. like, I'm gonna lose it. I'm gonna lose it. No, this no, is this your is your show. show, bro. No, you're, <laughs> you're, you are, you are the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're the special guest. You're the VIP. Um, I feel special. I just wanted to throw this in here because uh, it goes right along the lines. I remember years ago um, hearing uh, a preacher say something along the lines of, when young people ask me, is this music all right? Or is that music all right? He said that he, didn't, he no longer concerned himself with telling young people if the music was good or bad. He just had a question that he would ask them. And he felt that this question was, you know, um, this question sealed the deal. And the question he would ask them was, would the angels listen to it? Now, he's not talking, we're not talking here about music, about like murdering people. Like clearly, you know, like I don't think anyone would ask, would, you know, is this question music all right or not? <laughs> you know, like you can parse that one out on your own. Um, <laughs> all right, we'll I, I come think, back to that one. Okay, okay, yes. Uh, at the very least, it seems not the kind of question that you would expect a kid growing up in a traditional church to be like, is it okay if I listen to songs about like, you know, like murdering people? Generally speaking, what I anticipate the kids were asking is, they were asking, is this kind of music style? It's it's Christian right. music, but is the style okay? It's, right. it's what I would imagine. Because I know where you, hey, you're going to imprecatory psalms. So yeah, <laughs> yes, we, we will definitely go there. Um, but it seems to me that the more likely thing that the kids would be asking would be like, is this music style? Uh, the words are nice, but okay. is the style okay? And so anyway, so the guy's answer was like, well, here's my answer for you. Would the angels listen to it? And that was the end of that. That was his, that's how he addressed that issue. And I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, well, that's a really problematic answer because mm. what an angel is and what an angel would listen to is going to be culturally conditioned. Oh. You know? Like, for example, our humanoid picture of angels is culturally conditioned. When you read what angels look like in the Bible, and I'm not talking about the times where they apparently seem to shapeshift, but, like, when you actually read in the visions and stuff where, like, you, you get these, like, really alter-dimensional pictures of angelic beings... Man, right. if that thing showed up in my house, bro, I, I think I would I would drop dead, man. Like that would right. be the creepiest thing. Um, and, you know, and you go to Revelation and you, it talks about the worship of God and these angels. And it says there's peals of thunder and dark clouds. And I'm like, man, try that at church. <laughs> right. Isaiah thinks going to die, Yeah, we're going to bring in a thunder machine and uh, yeah. we're going to have an earthquake machine under the church to make it shake like Isaiah saw the temple trembling, you know, and smoke everywhere. Um, right. So, you know, we have these humanoid depictions of angels which are culturally conditioned. And then even if you go into like a lot of our traditional art in conservative Christianity, you look at the traditional art that depicts angels, they're always white guys with blonde hair and blue eyes. Right. And, and, you know, the women in heaven always have a bouffant haircut you know so it's like this cultural conditioning of like the 1950s so if that's the image that you've been conditioned to think of angels then what an angel would like is a part of that you know it's culturally yeah. conditioned we don't know what angels would like we have no idea we we haven't been in their space but when you get these glimpses of what worship looks like in heaven it clearly doesn't sound like an organ and a violin you know so, right. <laughs> so i just found that to be like a real easy cop-out that right. doesn't take into consideration the fact that 
our picture of these things are often conditioned by things that are not biblical and and not even necessarily reflective of what their dimension looks like and how they relate to God and how they worship. And, you know, like people complain about repetitive Hillsong, like revelation clearly says day and night, they sing, they holy, sing holy, 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 holy. And I'm like day and night. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're complaining about a five minute repetition. Like this is day and night. And it's, the same word holy holy well i guess they throw in the lord god almighty in there but yeah it's uh it's incredible like when we think of that line of reasoning does not take into account the fact that we are conditioned to think about these things within a certain constrained narrow framework that is culturally acceptable and yeah what angels are like could very well be very culturally bizarre for us so anyways just thought i'd throw that in there continue this that's actually going to come up for us again um when we talk about ellen white's views of music because yes you know you had mentioned we don't get to enter their space but as far as some of her writings purport she has mm-hmm. and the question will become like how, how literally do we take what she saw do we think maybe god contextualized things so as to not snap her in half um you know <laughs> poor old, old woman that she was um, yep. Like, th- these are some real questions. And I also, um, I mean, interestingly, there is a line of thought, and this will, this is kind of dipping into another topic, but there is a line of thought within Adventism that says, oh, well, what we should do, uh, oh, dang, I should have put this in the philosophy episode. I'm just going to say this now. Uh, there's a concept called over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. And for those who don't know, I'm sure your listeners would have heard this by now, but like eschatology is the study of last things. So end of life, end of days, end of whatever eschatology. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of overrealized eschatology is that there are certain things we expect to take place at the end of days, at the end of time, in the new creation, right? Something that's taking place at the end. The idea of overrealized eschatology is taking those things that are meant for a later time and saying that they have happened now. So, wow, really biting off more than I could chew here. In the Holy Flesh movement with the, you know, in early Adventism, you had mm-hmm. people making a claim that John's first epistle tells us not to make, which is, I have no sin, right? They believed that they had entered into an eschatological reality of complete total sanctification and the inability to ever sin again. Now, that obviously will ring a certain way in the ears of our last generation, friends, but it is going to have to be what it's going to be. That's overrealized <laughs> eschatology. But here's another example of it, and, and the examples I think are helpful. In um, 1 Timothy, I think, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul has this thing about how, like, in the last, the, the spirit distinctly says in the last days, uh, false teachers will come, right? Teaching doctrines of demons and people will be led astray. And then there's this list of things that are going to be uh, taught. And it's interesting, it contains some stuff that you wouldn't expect. Um, okay, now the spirit expressly says, this is 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and onward. Uh, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Um, So already, this is kind of bearing some similarities to what we saw in the previous episodes with Colossians chapter two, right? The, the, The arbitrary required abstinence from food. But what really struck me here was like, why marriage? 
Right? I did a research paper on this in seminary, right? Like, mm -hmm. wh why would someone come in and say, you are not allowed to get married? If anything, like, you know, I, I don't know, it just seems like a weird thing for someone to try to teach, right? Where could that possibly come from? And the, the line of interrogation I took with this was, oh, you could easily make that an extreme extrapolation from some of the things that Jesus said about marriage. Because in, in one of the Gospels where he's having that discussion with the Sadducees uh, about the woman who is married multiple times and all of her husbands died, right? Um, mm -hmm. In one of the, I can't remember if it's Matthew or Luke, where he says, those who are considered worthy to attain to eternal life, neither marry nor are given in marriage, right? And so there's this idea that within Christian eschatology, there's this possibility that marriage as we know it now might not exist in the future heavenly reality or may be replaced with something else. But mm -hmm. by the most literal reading, no more marriage, uh, neither marry nor given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So could this be over-realized eschatology taking a reality that will be true then when the time has finally come for that to be the case? and saying that has to be the case now, that has mm. to be the case now, right? And so why am I talking about this? What does this have to do with worship and music and blah, 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 blah. Not to dip too deeply into the negative emotions episode, but here we go. When we say things, and I dare I say, even when Ellen White says things like, we must approach the angelic form of worship as closely as possible in our own worship, that brackets out certain things that I don't think are relatable to the angels whatsoever. The mm. angels have not suffered as like co-inhabitors of the same body as sin in the way that we have. Human beings suffer in ways that immortal beings do not suffer. We have been through some right. ish, right? Mm. And because of that, we have in all of our cultures, traditions of whether you want to call it the lamentations or whether you want to call it the blues, we all have to sing our sad songs. We all have to sing songs of grief. We have to wail. We have to scream. We need to get that stuff out of our system. And that is very clearly, this is a lead into the next thing, but the next episode, that is very clearly a part of the Bible's songwriting tradition. That, that yeah. is something that is necessary for us to get the pain and the agony out of our system. We must mm. sing our songs of lamentation and offer them up to God. The Psalms do it over and over and over again. It is clearly a part of what is acceptable before God. But mm. if, if our measurement is, oh, our worship must be like what it will be like when we're in heaven. Well, newsflash, the end of this book says there will be no more weeping and no more. Like, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. But that mm. is not our reality right now. We do suffer and we do cry out and we do wail and weep and scream because we have to, because this life hurts us. Mm. So if we were to make our worship exactly the same as the angels have it and exactly the way that it's going to be when we finally make it to heaven, we would have to disconnect from our humanity as it is right now. Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. I hear people make that argument, I find it an extremely misguided, extremely misplaced argument because it, yeah. it bypasses so much of the Bible's wisdom about what it means to be fully human. And that is my over-realized eschatology <laughs> spiel. I love it. I love it, man. Oh, dude, we could, we could, that is a big topic. We could dig into that for quite a while. I won't, I will, yeah. I'll, I'll overcome the temptation. Um, 
uh, we're going to wrap this one up and then move into into some other topics. But mm-hmm. I wanted to, there was a thought that I had as you were explaining that this this idea as well, when we talk about angelic worship, the way I tend to think about it, and 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 I think is probably the more helpful way is when we talk about angelic worship, um, it it doesn't seem to me, at least from a biblical perspective, that we're not dealing with stylistic issues. No, I mean we don't know what instruments they use or if they even use any. Um, we don't know what their voices are capable of. Um, right. that that ours aren't capable of. We inhabit a physical dimension. They inhabit a spiritual dimension. Um, there's different rules that apply to both dimensions. Um, rules that, you know, when they enter the physical dimension, they can bend our rules. We, we, we can't, you know, and we can't enter into their dimension either. So it seems to me that approximating an angelic model of worship, would be something that has a lot more to do with principles than with stylistic aesthetics. Um, I mean, like I said, you know, when you see some of these worship examples in the Bible where there's earthquakes and peals of thunder, et cetera, I mean, I think this is obviously, you know, John being a, a, a being who inhabits a physical dimension, Isaiah being a person who in, inhabits a physical dimension, attempting to explain something that he sees in another dimension. And it's, I think this, he's using his best language here, you know, right. um, whether or not he can fully encapsulate he probably doesn't even have the categories to fully right. describe. He's using the best language he has available to him, um, and and so what does that look like? You know, what 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 does it look like for for worship? You know, peals of thunder and earthquake and and dark clouds and smoke. I mean, that that sounds like something that's you'd you'd probably see more in a horror movie than uh, right. <laughs> you know, like a worship session. But that's what we see, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so it seems to me then that there isn't really a way for us to mimic that in our dimension apart from like maybe some cheesy technology you know like (laughs) that that, that attempts to sort of like yeah it's like very artificial and very very corny um it seems to me that we're, we're, we're bound to a certain stylistic expression that that works within our physical dimension but that there are principles that can certainly um align with you know for example like clearly the worship of heaven is all about jesus and it's not about it's not about you know self like clearly the worship of heaven is is an expression of the principles of the kingdom of heaven the rhythm of the kingdom of heaven love for the other compassion you know uh justice you know obviously our worship can can align with that um you know i used to be a worship band leader as well and there were things that we discussed as worship leaders on how to, and and this is another point that I think is important to make for those who are listening, there's a distinction between collective or communal worship and Mm -hmm. just gospel music, you know? So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, and and, and obviously the setting plays a role in this as well, but I wouldn't necessarily say, look, for worship music, we're going to do Lecrae because it's not the kind of music that you could collectively do. It it lends itself more to a performance. Obviously, setting um, has a role in that too. But generally speaking, um, so as worship leaders, we were always looking for how can we better our skills as worship leaders so that the worship experience is constantly emphasizing that communal aspect where we are all, you know, worshiping together as opposed to, hey, I'm going to do like a 10 minute guitar solo. Well, was everybody else supposed to do in the meantime, you know, but that doesn't mean that you can't do a guitar solo outside of a worship setting that is itself worshipful. 
right. it's just maybe not the best for a communal. And that's right. that's a more practical issue. It's got nothing to do with moral claim. It's just a practical issue. Um, so well, yeah, like I think these considerations are are are, are important and and maybe a little <laughs> uh, opening some doors that notes. are a little complex. But go for it. Jump in there. I want I want to hear your thoughts. There there is a thing you just said that actually brought me back to uh, something that's on our outline that I didn't even cover. We this one, like I said, this one is a doozy, right? It has opened mm -hmm. up so many uh, rabbit holes. But uh, one of the things that comes up, and this is something I alluded to at the beginning with like how it affects the way musicians themselves think about how to conduct worship, and you've kind of alluded to it here, is the the juxtaposition, well, not juxtaposition, the, the difficulty in deciding like how far to go into musical complexity, musical mm. difficulty, and, and, and things like that with regards to like what is accessible, right? The juxtaposition between yes. like musical excellence and accessibility for the congregation. So it can be a communal exercise, like a corporate mm -hmm. expression. And this, this yeah. is the issue. When it comes to the over Leviticalizing of worship, and especially like the the overextension of the idea of praise as a sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise mm -hmm. as spoken of in Hebrews. If we lose sight of the fact that the fulfillment of the Old Testament animal sacrifices is Christ, not our works, mm -hmm. we are likely to stick the music and its quality into the category of the unblemished lamb, the unblemished dove, the unblemished mm. sacrifice. Dude, right? I've and, but like I've heard people make that claim. Yes, and this is that the, 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 the excellence the of excellence. the music is itself mm -hmm. the unblemished offering. Yes, and this is this mm. is a huge problem because I mean, for one thing, it undercuts the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. It denies the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. It messes with the priesthood of Christ. I think in certain ways. Um, mm. And it it leviticalizes the worship team when worship team, worship musicians is not a category that finds a fulfillment in anything in the New Testament. But mm. I know that in some of the conversations that musicians have about whether or not they should be paid, the Levites are a big part of that conversation, right? So this is this is like how you think of the Levites and what lessons you do take from the temple system. And, and how you apply that to ministry overall and the remuneration of people who work in ministry, all, all of that is a factor here. But when it comes to this thing that I call the excellence paradox, it, it, it's a problem because on the one hand, you have this rhetoric that musicians will use on themselves and church members will use on the musicians, like the music must be excellent. Well, hold on. What are your criteria for defining excellence? Mm -hmm. As far as it goes, when it comes to music academia, when it comes to certain subcultures within music, excellence is complexity. Excellence is virtuosity, the, the mm -hmm. accomplishing of something that is difficult to perform. But the problem is, if you, if you conceive of music excellence in terms of its complexity, whether it be in like performance difficulty or conceptual complexity, like using really obscure harmony or like obscure tuning. There's all kinds of weird things that people do that makes the music more complex in ways that aren't just shredding, right? Like the, the classical world is full of this like complicated harmony and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The more complexity you add, the more you create a sense of inaccessibility to the non-musician in the congregation, right? That's right. And this is the paradox. If you, if you must accommodate the lowest common denominator musically, then can you say you're offering God excellent music? Like mm. th there, there is a real tension there. 
um, which is I, one of the reasons why I warn people don't over Leviticalize Christian worship too much. Um, oh gosh, where was I going? Where was I going? Where was I going? Um, on, on the one hand, you can't discourage virtu- virtuosity because uh, it, you can't discourage it entirely because it makes the discipline of musicianship meaningless, right? Mm, if all mm. if all you ever need is four chords, then no one should ever get good at the instrument, right? Mm-hmm. And there is there is a place for musical virtuosity, I'm very sure, just like there is a place for virtuosity in visual arts and filmmaking and sculpture and any other aesthetic pursuit, right? You, anything yeah. your hand finds to do, do it well into the glory of God through Jesus Christ, right? So you don't want to write off virtuosity altogether, but you also can't like, like place such a, a strong value emphasis on it that mm. it it becomes this like this never ending journey to like try to make it better and better and better and more complex and ultimately more alienating. Um, Adam Neely has this really fascinating um, video essay that he did on the Star Spangled Banner, the American national anthem. And one of the things that he did was he you know examined the the compositional history, the melody of that song. I mean, it was later set to the lyrics that we know now as the Star Spangled Banner, but it was its own composition prior to that. And it was actually composed as a male baritone vocal virtuoso piece. It's a show-off piece. Mm. Um, Mm. And that's one of the things, if you look at the American cultural context, most public performances of the Star Spangled Banner are a massive crowd watching a soloist sing a difficult piece of music. That's right. Um, Extremely difficult piece. (laughs) A difficult piece of music that has a massive, massive range. In order for Mm -hmm. some of those high notes at the end of the song to be attainable for the average person, they have to start the song kind of ridiculously low. And again, Mm -hmm. possibly outside of the average person's vocal range. So it's one of those things where like the virtuosity, the excellence of the music actually makes the music bad for a corporate setting. Right, makes it bad as a collective expression. So, again, the Leviticalization of Christian worship and the idea of like, you know, making music into a anti-typical sacrifice, hugely Mm. problematic. But in the same way, I mean, here we tie it into the Hebrew religion being a halfway house to to wean people off of paganism. The priesthood is that too because these pagan religions had priests. But in Christ, once all these things are fulfilled, we have to see the fulfillment of the sacrifices in Christ, of the priesthood in Christ, of the temple in Christ. And that really needs to set us free to say that what we offer to God now in Christian modes of worship is not anti-typical fulfillment of the Levitical system, mm-hmm. right? And, and so we can't apply Levitical logic of clean and unclean, pagan and not pagan, or whatever, like in the temple, outside of the temple, we can't apply that logic anymore to Christian worship. But lo and behold, we've been doing that over and over again. We try to nadab and abihu our way through music genres. We try mm. to <laughs> turn, we try to turn like the qual the the complexity of the harmonies and the the quality of the vocal performance into the unblemishedness of the sacrifices brought into the temple. I mean, these are serious theological problems that kind mm. of get glossed over because we're just like, oh, it's worship. Hand it over to a bunch of teenagers and put unrealistic pressure on them without explaining anything, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I know that was probably like a wild cloud, a wild cluster of ideas, but I think really 
at the end of the day, like when it comes to conceiving of Christian worship in reference to the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, it is a matter of systematizing a lot of very disparate concepts and elements and trying to harmonize them in a way that gives us a clear path forward in how to conduct ourselves. And mm. which is ultimately why I think the normative worship principle is the only workable one. And the regulative worship principle, I think, is actually a non-starter. Like mm. th there are so many missing pieces and so many ambiguities that if you were to say we must conduct worship in the specific ways we are commanded to in the scripture, I think you just wouldn't be able to start at all. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. That was a lot yeah. of words, but there it goes. No, that was brilliant. That was brilliant, man. Well, from here, we're going to move into uh, just a few other topics. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Ellen White at the very end. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to be moving uh, also into music and negative emotions. Uh, mm -hmm. That's going to be a really, really interesting one because there's a few things there. Although we've rubbed shoulders with that already, there's a few mm -hmm. specific ideas that tend to come up a lot in these conversations that I think is it'd be really good to just parse that and yep. peel it back and then say, like, let's make sense of this. That's it for today, everyone. We are out of time, but this is going to continue for quite a few episodes. So make sure you keep tuning in, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about it, and uh, enjoy the journey along with us. In the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, I invite you to go to the storychurchproject.com and check out the new Bible study guide, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture. The second edition is now available. And this is a Bible study set that's been specifically designed for communicating the narrative of redemption, the story of scripture to millennials, Zeds, uh, post-church, unchurched, post-modern generations. Make sure you check that out. Get your hands on a copy and I will catch you next week. Mm -hmm.